Welcome back to If It Ain't Baroque Podcast, your friendly history special. This is Gemma. Hi. And Natalie. Hello. Uh, welcome, or as they would say in early modern English, right trusty and well-beloved, we greet you well. As our guest today, we have Olga. She is a London perfume tour guide. We have invited Olga to talk about the British perfumery and its history. Gemma and I love talking about all things royals, so the connection between the crown and its scents seemed like a great match. Olga, welcome. Hello, all. Please tell us more about yourself. I am a perfumeric. I am a tour guide in London, a member of the Fragrance Foundation UK and Perfume Society in London. And I've been doing perfume walks for about uh, five years now. As you can hear, I have an accent. I'm Russian and I lived in Italy for 15 years and then I moved to London. And I've uh, lived in London for the last 11 years. So if, uh, if someone wants to go on a tour with you, where do they find information? I advertise my walks in Eventbrite and on Instagram. And it's very easy to find me there. It's Perfume Walks. Perfume Walks, nice and simple. Love it. Uh, and your walks have a lot of uh, British brands on it, as because I, I went on a walk of yours. So tell us more about that. We are lucky to have such a rich perfumery in London. And some of the brands are as old as almost 300 years old. And we're still lucky to have a florist London for example, and they were founded in 1730. Imagine that. Then we have some brands that were completely forgotten for some years, but now they are living their second opportunity, their revival, real revival, like Atkinson's, for example, and uh, Grossmith. Have you heard about Grossmith for Atkinson's? I've never heard of them, but I've heard of Florist, and if I remember right, is that the one that had owned the museum? Yes, exactly. They do have a museum. It's available every day for anybody who goes to Flores. And they also have the so-called perfumery, which is a lab, an office, and also a museum. And sometimes we have an opportunity to go there too. Well, that's great. So what if, if, I, um, if I came down to London and was on your tour, what would I expect from that? What would we see? It's a three-hour hard work to do. <laughs> it's, uh, yes, it's a three-hour walk that just time just flies by. And we start from Flores because it's the oldest shop that we have in London. And then we go through the arcades in Mayfair talking about perfume houses that existed or still exist in, in London. Not only English. Because on our way, we have a French shop, an Italian shop as well. And we finish in a real temple of perfumery, Jovoy, that has perfumes from all over the world, from the oldest brands like, for example, Ubigan. And Ubigan is much older than Napoleon, you know. So he, for example, bought some perfumes in the most difficult times of his time, of, of his life. And Ubigon has the receipt uh, signed by Napoleon. Oh. So, and Jovoy has perfumes by this very brand. And then the newest English brands or 
Spanish or Italian, for example. And it's such a joy to finish in a place that celebrates perfumery. They have both heritage brands and uh, the new very quirky, very quirky modern brands as well. So we finished there. So what you can expect is a lot of stories about people who wore perfumes, uh, people who created them. Because, for example, have you heard about the first Guerlain, the founder of the Guerlain who worked for Floris at the beginning of the 19th century? After that, he created his perfume house. So there is a connection between the English perfumery and French perfumery. And then we go and visit a small boutique that sells maybe the oldest cologne in the world. And of course, of course, uh, the cologne was made in our days, but the recipe was created for Caterina de' Medici in the middle of the 16th century, Acqua della Regina. And you can still buy something that smells not exactly the way it was in the 15th mm-hmm. century, of course, because some ingredients changed. Or we cannot, for example, use some natural ingredients anymore. But anyway, we, we can have an idea of what what it smelled like. So we pass this small Italian boutique as well. And we speak about perfumery that came to France or, or to Germany through Italy. And we discover the real birthplace of European perfumery, which is Italy, which is Italy, of course. We sniff a lot. It doesn't sound right, of course, <laughs> but we, we taste a lot of, we try a lot of perfumes, but we also walk around and we walk in Mayfair, in one of the most glamorous parts of Mayfair. And even if it rains, it doesn't, it doesn't bother us because the majority of the itinerary passes through the arcades. So we listen uh, about the stories of the creation of the arcades that we visit. Some of them are very funny. And uh, Burlington Arcade, Piccadilly Arcade. Uh, we meet my uh, favorite friend, Bob Brummel, who maybe... Oh, yeah. Yes, of all you know him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, isn't he lovely? He's adorable. He's absolutely adorable. adorable. Yeah, so he might have not used any perfume at all in his life because, for example, he used to say that real gentlemen should smell like clean skin. And it was in the times when people took bath maybe once a month and uh, they were using very heavy musky perfumes and men were using makeup and were wearing wigs. Yes, we meet him, we hear about his story. We walk through the uh, through Mayfair and when we finish in uh, Jovoy, we have a little treat and we have gifts, of course. And uh, usually I can tell you that, well, at the end of the tour, a lot of people just hug each other. <laughs> And they have such a great mood. And I think that, well, it's not because I'm so great, but because there is some alcohol in uh, in the perfumes. With <laughs> because otherwise it cannot explain why people are so joyous and happy and have this elevated mood. It's great fun. It's great fun. And uh, of course, of course, do let me know when you are, when, when you are free and uh, we can arrange a, a walk for us. 
Well, definitely. Yeah, Gemma, you need to come down. Yeah, I have so many <laughs> walks I need to go on now. Yes. <laughs> In addition to having a lot of history of perfume on your walks, you also have history of London because then uh, you go through these historic places and then you have to kind of enlighten people of where, how it came about. And you have also the royal connections on your stories as well. Well, yes, we do you speak about the users of perfumes if they are if they are part of the royal family, but we don't know that much, especially about the modern royal family because uh, this this information is kept uh, secret and I can only tell you that we know for sure what perfume Lady Diana was wearing for her wedding only because she broke the the perfume bottle and spelt everything on her wedding dress and there was a stain with this uh, made made of this perfume so she was um, she was wearing a lot on the dress and it was quelque uh, fleur by Ubigon, the same the same perfume house that napoleon used for example Sometimes we can hear that she was also using Penhaligon's bluebells, but I guess she had a lot of perfumes. The only thing that we can say for sure is that the perfume houses always send perfume gifts to uh, to the royal family. So we know what perfumes were dedicated to, for example, the wedding of uh, Queen Victoria and uh, Prince Albert, and the same fragrance by Floris, which is called Il Bouquet de la Reine, the uh, Queen's Bouquet, was relaunched in 2002. It has the same exact name. The formula was slightly changed to make to update it, of course, to no, to to modern requirements. But it's an exquisite perfume, and it has this. It's not universal, but it's very elegant, and there is something eternal about it. Very nice to wear. It's a floral fragrance, but um, exquisite, absolutely exquisite. So it has a connection with um, with the royal family, but. Uh, of course, we don't know whether Queen Victoria was has ever had ever worn it. We don't know that. And another one, for example, we have a very interesting story about Atkinson's because Atkinson's is a very old house, 1799. In the middle of the 19th century, they created the White of Rose. And it was so popular, so popular that you can, for example, find poems in Russian about it, that name it, so we know it existed at the end of the 19th century for sure. And then we also know that Queen Victoria gave White Rose by Atkinson's as a gift to her granddaughter, Alexandra, who was the last uh, Russian queen, Zarina, let's say, let's call her this way. Alexandra had a standing order with Atkinson's because she was uh, perfuming not only her dress, because in her times, ladies were not wearing perfumes on the skin, but on a handkerchief, on a foulard, uh, or you could spray your sofa or your curtains in the in home, so everything would smell like you. And uh, she had a standing order of um, white rose by Atkinson's. When the family was arrested by Bolsheviks in 1918, one of the uh, maidens took everything that she could she could take, small small things from the rooms of the princesses and the queen. 
and uh, took it away. Among small things and maybe jewellery, there were perfume bottles. And we know that the princesses, for example, wore um, Coty, French fragrances. And there was um, Rose Jacqueminot by Coty. Or there was... Um, there was another one, the Jasmine, Jasmine from Corsica by Coty, and there was White Rose by Atkinson's. So this very lady who managed to escape and moved to Canada that far away, when she was old, she actually contacted the um, Russian Museum near St. Petersburg in uh, so-called Tsarskoye Silo, which is um, the summer residence of the Tsars, and uh, there is a big museum dedicated to the Romanovs family. And she sent the bottles back to the museum. Aww. And it, it looks like their bottle is the only vintage bottle that you can find by Atkinson's because they almost disappeared. Disappeared. We cannot say that they disappeared, but they became a little bit mass market and then very much mass market. And by the 80s, you can find very mass market uh, soaps and uh, and fragrances, but nothing exclusive. And they were bought several times by different companies. And at the end, they became part of an um, uh, Italian corporation. And uh, the new owners decided to relaunch the greatness, the luxury side of the um, of the of the perfume house so they had they launched some of the old formulas they changed the names of the fragrances for example the white rose that zarina alexandra was uh, was wearing is now called white rose de alex because mm-hmm. alex was the uh-huh. nickname of alexandra yeah and it's an exquisite exquisite perfume that doesn't smell like roses. It smells like raspberries and lychees. And there are lychees in the perfume, they say, among the notes. So it's an exquisite perfume, amazing. So everybody who doesn't like a typical rose fragrance mm-hmm. is more than welcome to try what rose the Alex because it's completely different um, and it's beautiful, amazingly beautiful. And, for example, there was another perfume by Atkinson's, which was called a Tulip Noir, and it was uh, dedicated to uh, the novel by Alexandre Dumas, where the main character is a very unusual, bold uh, young lady. There is a perfume in our days, the same perfume, but it's now called Black Tulip, which is the exact translation from Tulip Noir. And it's ambery, it's uh, amazing, it's amazing. So, yes, so this um, connection, royal connection with Atkinson's, and by the way, the first royal warrant to Atkinson's was given by George IV for a perfume that he smelled from a lady on a bull. This perfume was so wonderful that he couldn't resist. He said, I give you the warrant, the royal warrant. Now you supply your goods to me. And that was a great achievement, of course, for James Atkinson, because he came... Uh, to London in 1799 with almost nothing. He had his recipe for bear grease uh, pomade uh, for the beard and uh, a real bear. Bears are were working on the streets of London too. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I can only tell you that the bear lived till the end of his life and, life and um, he Not was... Not really good. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, he wasn't <laughs> used uh, for the Bear Grease, but uh, he was uh, sitting in front of the first perfume shop by uh, James Atkinson in what is nowadays is the Chinatown. It's uh, 44 Gerard Street. There is a shop now there, the same address, but no Atkinson's house, um, no Atkinson's shop. So the bear was sitting there in front of the house and uh, people were wondering whether to enter the shop or not, whether they were welcome at all. But it was a, it was a kind of a, an attraction. It's an interesting idea to put a bear in front. I don't know that you would get many customers now if you had a real-life bear. Yeah, but maybe you are attracted, you know. So this is about Atkinson and his connection. And James Atkinson knew, for example, our friend Bob Brummel. Everyone knew him. It seems yeah. like everyone knew him. Uh, I, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure they, well, when they dedicated a perfume to Bob Brummel, this perfume was called uh, the British Bouquet, and it smells like champagne and leather, because Bob Brummel used to say that the best way to clean your leather boots is with uh, champagne, of course. Of course, so what bougie. else? <laughs> yeah, so bougie. So bougie. <laughs> Hashtag posh, yeah. yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so yeah, he said a lot of a lot of strange things um, together with very sensible ones. But uh, yeah, I don't think I. Well, I can clean my boots at the same time drinking champagne. I can understand that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I relate. Yes. Yes. And of course, uh, Grossmith is another interesting perfume house which was uh, revived at the beginning of uh, 2000. It was maybe 2006, if I'm not mistaken. It was a dormant brand. And the person who discovered this company didn't even have the surname Grossmith. His surname is uh, Brooks, but um, he discovered to be part of the family. And then he discovered to have relatives in London. And one of the relatives lived not very far from him and they didn't know about each other then he discovered the books of the formulas and the story of this wonderful perfume house that at the beginning of the 20th century had a huge perfume factory just next to St Paul's Cathedral where Paternoster Square is now and they lost everything because they were bombed together with everything that was bombed in the city it was a a huge loss for their business, of course, and I think they haven't uh, recovered uh, totally until the Brooke family um, found them with the help of Roger Dove, another great name in uh, English and London perfumery. They restarted the business and uh, their range of perfumes is not very uh, large, but their their perfumes smell very close the way they smelled 100 years ago. And this is their policy. This is their strategy and the character of the brand. And even the bottles that you um, that they that they sell their perfumes in look exquisite because it's a baccarat house, baccarat uh, bottles, and they are ribbed. And it reminds me of another thing: in Victorian times, all the poisonous things were kept in the bottles 
ribbed from one side. So even if it's too dark or maybe you cannot write, but if you grabbed a bottle at home or in the pharmacy, you could understand instantly that there is something poisonous in it. You will not give it to a kid. You can give it to your nasty neighbor, of course, but not to your kids. <laughs> So, so this is it. And it, I like this connection between dangerous, poisonous things and perfumes because there is something uh, very malicious in perfume mm-hmm. and there is danger and there is discovery. And of course, perfumes are not just uh, room sprays, mm-hmm. right? I think that perfumes should be a little bit naughty and glamorous and it should be luxury. There should be a story behind it. So every woman that uses a perfume becomes a queen, a real queen when you wear a, a good perfume. Yeah, this is this is my opinion about it. But of course, they can be light and citrusy fragrances as well. And we know that perfumery started like this. For example, L'Aqua della Regina the Italian one that I mentioned a little bit earlier by Santa Maria Novella smells a little bit too simple for us now, but imagine how it could smell in the middle of the 16th century. Mm. And almost all perfumes were made of rose, marjoram, and citruses. So they were quite simple. There were no synthetics. The only synthetic ingredient was alcohol, and it was drinkable. So <laughs> everything was natural. Everything was natural. So rosemary, yes, lavender was used. Rosemary was used. And uh, I think you could still use English lavender at the time. Yeah, to calm well, down as well. Yeah, I don't think now now any lavender is used. No, English lavender is used. But I need to check it. To check it. I'm not sure. Well, that's for part two. Yeah. That's for the sequel. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yes. I'll get ready. I'll get yes. ready. <laughs> yeah, you were talking about the, the royal wand. Can you just explain what a royal wand is and what that gives to people? Thank you for your question. It's a good one. Especially in our days when we know we've lost Prince Philip and we've recently lost Queen Elizabeth II and um and prince charles became king charles so all the royal warrants need to change the royal warrant is the symbol of quality of course it's given to a business and can be any business if you supply for at least 5 years impeccably what you produce so it's guarantee of an impeccable service to the royal family and if we walk on st james street we see a lot of shops that bear the, the the royal warrant at the at the front, and it can be from the monarch. So we see the royal warrant that looks that looks like the coat of arms of the royal family, and we can see another one which is of Prince of Wales, and it's recognisable by the three white feathers. For example, Flores got their first warrant that we can see at the entrance. It's a huge one. You, you could, it cannot be passed unnoticeable. And it was given in 1820 by George IV, the first one ever. And imagine that, it wasn't given for the perfume because Floreses at the time were barbers. Oh, really? Uh, yes, yes. But like a lot of uh, perfumers, uh, William Penhaligans was a barber. And I'm sure that James Atkinson's was a barber too. The shop that the bear was guarding was actually a barber shop. But it was normal because there were no 
perfumeries as as shops. There were barber shops and pharmacies where you could buy a little bit of uh, eau de cologne to disinfect the wound or to pick you up because they were also sold as elixirs to pick you up because the alcohol they were made with was drinkable. So Floris has this wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, coat of arm at the entrance of the shop. But now they collected about 18 coat of arms, about 18 royal warrants in the whole history of their existence. When a monarch dies, a business has about two years to change or to reconfirm the, uh, the royal warrant. So let's see how it goes. So returning to the Florist London, mm-hmm. the first royal warrant was uh, given by George IV for their wonderful turtoise hair combs. And he was so happy to have a hair comb that didn't hurt his hair. And uh, you can see uh, on the ex- um, exposition, the small museum that they have inside the shop, this first Spanish turtoise hair combs because actually the first Mr. Flores was Senor Flores. He was Juan Faminias Flores, who came from Menorca in 1730. And he opened this barber shop in the gentleman's area close to St. James Palace. And then he married a lovely English girl and they made up a power couple because they worked together and uh, they exchanged their ideas. And uh, so they started at the barber shop and then they became, they tended more into perfumery, more and more. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, in our days, of course, you can buy shaving creams and shaving soaps there, ordinary normal soaps, let's call them, bath gels as well, mouth washes, but whatever you want. And it looks a little bit like classical gentleman's shop, but there is a lot for ladies as well. And they do not only sell English heritage. What I like about them, they always go hand in hand with, uh, with, with, with modern times and modern trends. And one of the best perfumes that they produce now is honey oud. Honey oud is exquisite. Uh, you can wear it in the summer and in winter. And in winter, it smells like a hug. It's amazing. It's just <laughs> yummy. You have to drink it, but you can't because nobody <laughs> makes perfumes with uh, drinkable alcohol anymore. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think you can drink perfumes now, can you? No. <laughs> well, you could when it was um, uh, when it was. Well, at the beginning of the nineteenth century, you could drink it, but then mm. no, not anymore. No, no. Horrible. Some people try, though. I know. And no, they, they shouldn't. No, it should, it should be horrible. Yeah, it should be horrible. When, when you go into like, like boots and things like that and they spray it constantly and you walk through yeah. and you get it in your mouth, that's just that's enough to put you off wanting to do that. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, speaking about the royal warrant, when you get it, it's not sad that you'll keep it forever because if you do something not very ethical, you can be taken the, the warrant can be taken away. And it happened to a business I know. Well, I'm not mentioning it because well, no need to. Data protection. Yep. Yeah, 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 no need to be cruel, but they disclosed what they supplied to the royal family and their warrant was taken. Ah. So, yeah, you need to be, you, you always need to respect your customer. If you burn inside of, of all the secrets you might have. Yeah. 
<laughs> and actually, that's why we don't know a lot about what the royal family actually uses. But um, sometimes when the, the queen or the king is no longer with us, we, we might find out about their preferences. And the queen mother, who was... Uh, Elizabeth, not Elizabeth II, but the Queen Mother Elizabeth. For example, she was wearing a very sweet perfume by the company called Mary Chess, because their perfume bottles looked like the chess figures. So Mary Chess, they had heliotrope. Heliotrope, heliotrope is not used very much now as a, as a fragrance. And it was, it for the 1980s, it was already too sweet, but she loved it. And uh, she had a private secretary or a servant who went to Mary Chess and uh, bought uh, fragrances for her. Well, she wasn't on the throne at the moment, so they could disclose what she was wearing. And so they said that all American tourists bought heliotrope by Mary Chess because Queen Mother was wearing it and it was a little bit too sweet. (laughs) (laughs) But they discontinued and, well, they were not an English brand, they were American brand, but they were very active in London. Well, you can find something online now, but you can't find, uh, so they do not exist anymore. It's, It's a pity though. Yeah, they discontinue fragrances. When they do that, it's very sad. We hate it when they do it. We hate it when they do it. Especially if we like some of the discontinued fragrances. Exactly. Uh, So you said earlier that people didn't wash often in the olden days. So how would they kind of perfume themselves? What would they do about their hygiene? That's a good question. I think we need to remember the conditions in which people lived because, well, the poorest might not be very much interested in perfuming themselves. They needed, well, they had to survive. The the richer you are, more you think about the environment and yourself and your hygiene, I guess. And uh, of course, even if people didn't take bath very often, but the showers were invented much, much, much later. For example, Elizabeth I always asked to put flowers wherever she went because she had a very sensitive nose. If you go to the British Museum, you will see the diffusers that came from the Arabic countries and from China. So you could burn something in these diffusers for the, for, for the rooms. And of course, we have the potpourri, which are not very popular anymore. But it was one of the ways to perfume your environment. And as about yourself, people did change clothes much more often than we do now, because exactly they needed to be presentable at the table. So there was a change of clothes before dinner. But again, we are talking about people who could afford more shirts or more dresses than just one for for the entire life. And ladies were uh, wearing so-called pomanders, or there is another word, nosegays. Nosegay is something that makes your nose uh, joyful, full of joy. And for example, Floris London has a letter from Florence Nightingale, who, you know, was an intrepid lady. She went to Crimea to save uh, English soldiers, British soldiers who were wounded and take care of them. And she was using perfumes by uh, Floris, white rose by Floris, 
was one of her favorite scents. Uh, by the way, she had something from uh, Santa Maria Novella, the Italian perfume house I mentioned before that made the, the perfume for Catherine de' Medici. And uh, she was wearing this, um, the flowers made of uh, fabric that could be perfumed. Instead of perfuming your body, you had those lovely fake flowers perfumed on you. Or Oscar Wilde was wearing his famous green carnation and it was perfumed as well. It was kind of a nosegay as well for him. Yes, and they were wearing pomanders and they were wearing perfumed handkerchiefs as well or these nosegays, and that was the way to create a little bit more of fragrant environment around you. Kind of the same thing as like, um, you know, when you watch like a, a Austin movie or that kind of thing and they go for the smelling salts, is that similar? To, to, to do what, sorry? To, uh, the, the when, when, um, salt. When, ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfume salts is an interesting thing because, for example, they were not only used to perfume yourself. They uh, smelled nasty at the beginning because when you wear corset, sometimes you faint because your, this, your blood circulation is interrupted. <laughs> so you need some salts to return to your senses. And then they started adding lavender and rose into it. And by the way, there was a businessman from the United States who came to London in the middle of the 19th century, and he had a business of lingerie, corsets, and perfumed scented salts. They needed to go together, I, re I repeat, for the sake of our health. So he had a business that looks a little bit like uh, Victoria's Secret, sells underwear and perfume waters. So it hasn't been created now it was the creation of the 19th century. So the Victorian, Victoria's Secret. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yep, it was a Victorian, Victoria's Secret. And uh, when he decided to go into perfumery, he had the brilliant idea to use the Victoria's um, crown as a topper on the perfume bottles and called his uh, perfume house Crown Perfumery. And this perfume house existed up to 1999 until it was bought by Clive Christian. And now we know the same perfume house as Clive Christian. Turning back to the Crown Perfumery and the scented salt, not even damsel in distress used them. We know Amalia Eckhart, who flew on the plane, and she had the, his crown perfumery lavender salts in her leather jacket when she flew on the airplane. You see, it was, uh, yes, it, She. I think she used it more, well, who knows why, but, well, she was great and the salt smelled wonderful, so why not? <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice connection, yeah. Because, you know, we always think about famous people, but we kind of rarely sort of connect in our minds sort of the perfume brands with the with with these famous people so it's nice to kind of see okay it's this person like this so they smelled like this etc etc yeah going back to the lady diana bluebell association i remember read that she wore it inside her jackets or something uh and i can actually imagine that because it's a very intense floral scent but i read also that emma corin who played her who played lady diana in the crown she was wearing it as she was filming her scenes so that's uh, that's a nice yeah, connection amazing. there. <laughs> amazing. No, I, I learn something new every day. And thank you very much for sharing that. So I learned it too. 
Um, well, the bluebells by Penhaligans are very particular. They're not like bluebells by Jo Malone, completely different. They're earthy and uh, green and very vintage. And I heard also that Kate Moss sometimes mm. wore them. And imagine that, Margaret Thatcher. So she wore bluebells and uh, she was an iron lady completely. So, but when you smell bluebells by Penhalgans, you believe that she could wear it. Yeah. I cannot believe that. Well, it, it was it's a surprise for me that uh, Lady Diana uh, wore, wore the same fragrance because they are completely different as a character. Completely mm. different, but maybe kind of set different on them as well. So if if Diana wore it in her jackets and Margaret wore it on the skin, so they would have smelled slightly different. But then again, it's all about the person as well. So I, I read that Tilda Swinton also from memory. So she wore it until she made her own bespoke scent and she ordered it from, from a brand or she made it herself. I can't remember, but she wore it up to a certain point as well. So it was a popular fragrance. I think st- well, it still is because it's... Uh, I think back now. You know, we also need to remember what perfumery looked like or smelled like, to to, to be more exact, in the 1970s or 1980s, because it was completely different. It was, well, I think Bluebells by Penhaligans are much closer to Quelquefleur ou Bigon than uh, Jo Malone's Bluebells to Penhaligans' Bluebells. So the perfumery was different. And maybe in our days, Diana would have would have chosen something else. Or Margaret Thatcher would have, I don't know, would have wear something with a black birch tar in it to, or much leathery fragrance. Or Oudi, oh, I think she would... Uh, she might have used oud, a lot of oud, oud and leather together. Yes, for Margaret, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something a bit more nuclear, I think. Yeah. yeah. At the same time, she was a classical English lady, so she was a she was brought up in middle class. So she might have stayed with some something very simple. I think. Who knows? Maybe you know, classic rose, something. Yeah. I think it's so, it's so interesting how Margaret Thatcher and Diana are completely different people. You would not put them together, but no. something as amazing as perfume can bring them together and connect them. It's just, it's incredible what perfume can do, uh, like so many different levels. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Or for example, uh, we know that Marilyn Monroe was uh, said once that she was, she was wearing just a drop of Chanel number no. five before she was going to bed or to go to bed she slept in with nothing just a drop of chanel number no. five and six years after that she bought six bottles of floris's rose geranium so i think uh, there is a difference in uh, your image marilyn monroe and your personality norma Jean, which is a completely different person and she she norma Jean was a simple girl simple american girl died very young she might be very much in love with the simpler fragrances not uh, a luxurious Chanel number five who knows Mm. we we don't know for sure but it's nice to speculate about it and to reflect to reflect on the connection between uh, your inner self and things you choose for you right yeah Mm -hmm. and what you want the world to know about what you prefer as well true true I agree totally agree with that 
For me, one of the most forgotten facts about Marilyn Monroe is the fact that she was born, from what I remember, the same year as the late Queen as well. We forget about that. Yeah. 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 One of them outlived the other by quite a stretch. But um, yeah, it's interesting to to, to remember that. Because they did meet, I think. Yeah. uh, Marilyn came over here to film... What was it? Stupid the Prince and the Girl? Yeah, yeah, which was uh, immortalized in that wonderful film with Kenneth Branagh. Speaking about Lawrence Olivia, he was wearing Vetiver by Floris London. So earthy. Earthy and masculine. We I imagine that. Would we know what Vivian Lee uh, wore or what she preferred? So she was wearing White Rose by Atkinson's, the same, worn by Alexandra, the Russian Zarina. But in later life, it was Magriffe by Carvin, a French brand. And it's understandable because she was older and she was more glamorous and absolutely Magriffe smells exquisite and it's a fragrance for a star. Well, two-time Academy Award winner, yeah. yeah <laughs> it doesn't look bad on your bio, too, yeah. And Vivian Lee's mother was wearing White Rose by Atkinson's, too, so I think it was mm. part of their family. Rose was always considered the fragrance of a real lady, so all this 1920s Chanel Number no. 5 and so on, it was for bad girls, of course, for bad girls, all <laughs> for the stars, for the glamorous stars who didn't care anymore what their mothers thought yeah it's interesting it's interesting um i would love to go to st petersburg and to smell that last drop of uh, the white rose by atkinson's to see how whether it was different or how different it was from what they're selling now but still the modern version is exquisite i think that's my probably my favorite story of all the uh, history of perfume, that's probably my favorite, favorite story of the Queen Victoria, Empress Alexandra. And there's this link, which is not just their DNA, but there's also perfume. And the it should be a film. I say that every time I talk about anything, <laughs> but this should be a film, maybe not even a series, but a sort of a 90 minute film, even if it's, you know, the cheesy Netflixy timeline, lifetime, whatever, uh, this should be a film. And then, you know, they're escaping and then the perfume bottle is left behind. And then, you know, someone takes it across the ocean and then recovers it. Many, it yeah, I don't care if um, Anastasia was found or not. I care about the the the, the, the perfume because I know she wasn't. I, I know I know she never got away. So. This this is the mystery I want to dig at. I would watch it. I would watch it. <laughs> I would watch it too. Yes. <laughs> and, and have you noticed? Have you noticed how often perfumes are being mentioned now in modern movies? They were not mentioned almost at all in previous even books. It's so difficult to find something. It's it's almost it's so frustrating because you need to read. No, it's a pleasure, of course. You have to read a lot of books. It's a pleasure. Yes. Yes. But you, yeah. you would also love to find some information, more information about perfumes or of fragrances. And as if it wasn't considered an important part or maybe a frivolous part, not uh, worthy of men- being mentioned of your life. They're too intimate, perhaps. They mm. that maybe it was yeah. just something yeah. like talking about people's underwear or something. And because it, you, you can kind of not see it now, but it's a lot more open topic, I think. If you say the word underwear, then, you know, than before. And I think the same with perfume, because it's something yeah. to do with the skin and it's kind of very personal. Yes, um, maybe, yeah. 
Yes, true. And poets mention perfumes much more often than writers, actually, because it's all about emotions, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a, we discussed earlier, a little mystery about the perfume from a famous shipwreck. Right. There were actually two stories instead of one. One of them is about the perfume bottles a German perfumer was carrying with him on Titanic. And they were found with perfume in them. But uh, he didn't have time to become famous. So we are surprised that the perfumes were still in the bottles. But they were sample bottles, so they're not the big ones. Mm -hmm. But another impressive find was made in 2011. A ship was found in the Bermuda Triangle and it was wreckage of 1864 and the ship's name was Mary Celestia and they found perfume bottles completely sealed with perfume inside by another London brand which is called PS and Luba and we haven't heard i guess you haven't heard about this brand i haven't heard about this brand because it's not existent anymore PS and Luba was a huge perfume house and they had their shop where now we have Ralph Lauren Boutique in Bond Street. It's where the, the statue with the man and the horse is and the small square just near 24 Old Bond Street. It's almost in front of Tiffany's. On Breakfast, lunch or dinner. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so they had their boutique there and uh, somebody had it on uh, Maria Celestia in 1864. It was found in the ship and there's um, there's a lady in uh, Bermuda Island who bought the bottles and she was a perfumer and she created perfumes inspired by the perfumes that she found inside. So wow. you can actually find kind of a replica or a tribute. We cannot be sure about how close to the original these perfumes are. But I think that if you start a project like this, you might be an enthusiast, so you'll try to preserve as much of the original fragrance as possible. So it's very interesting. So the perfumes have been kind of underwater for, what was it, more than 100 years? 150 years. 150 years. So I was wondering, obviously, it depends on how how far down the wreckage was, so that if it's too far down, then would the pressure have been the kind of influence on how preserved the perfumes were? Who knows? But what we can say for sure, that it didn't damage champagne. That's, That's what I'm after. <laughs> That's the perfect answer. <laughs> yes. You know that Titanic, for example, had a surprise. Some champagne bottles were found there. They were opened and they were exquisite. So what Verve Clicquot started doing is they ripened some of their modern bottles, putting them under the pressure of the, of the ocean. So they become older and taste better, much faster than in normal conditions on the top of the, on the surface. So literally the pressure chamber. It's kind of a pressure chamber, yeah. <laughs> pressure chamber, exactly. Yeah, it didn't ruin wow. It shouldn't ruin the perfume. No, the phrase, it doesn't even ruin champagne, I won't, 
on my doormat. I want this on a t-shirt, on my, you know, bathrobe. I want it everywhere. Yeah, this is a fantastic <laughs> phrase. It's just uh, famous last words, literally. <laughs> this is the perfect phrase ever. Yeah, this is a very surprising fact. If a perfume bottle or a champagne bottle is perfectly preserved under, what was it, two miles or two and a half miles, uh, the wreckage is. And it recently has, unfortunately, this is the sad bit, uh, led to kind of imploding of a submersible leading to the death of five or so people. But champagne was fine. That is the strength of the bottle. This is the best trivia fact, I think, ever. I think it's incredible that a glass bottle can survive that and a ship can't. It didn't even pop. It's just because, you know, sometimes, you know, it pops too early or something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but it's, yeah, it's just, it's just phenomenal. I think if we had a rating for facts on this podcast, I think probably this would have gone straight to the top. I think we probably should (laughs) after after now if we're going to do it. (laughs) The Baroque rating. Wow. Okay. That's, uh, yes, it's pretty phenomenal to know what's going out there as far as the uh, alcohol goes. Yeah, I had another thought when you were saying about the poison and the bottles and the perfume, because it reminded me of how, because yes, the the alcohol goes into perfumes and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. And then before that, you said it was um, drinkable. But it's curious how today, if you go to a bar, sometimes you're asked, what's your poison? (laughs) 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 Yes, we like poison somehow. We are attracted. It's like a poisonous, good poisonous cookie. You know, you can't stop eating it, even if it hurts you. Cookies are the best. Especially if they're fragrant. <laughs> the almonds and the vanilla and everything. Yeah, it's interesting. This is a complete stream of consciousness, but it's curious how vanilla and cinnamon goes into so, mu- so much of bakery and so much of perfumery as well. How many perfumes have cinnamon and vanilla? And they can actually smell different from each other as well because they can put them in differently. And the same as with uh, baking, although I know nothing about baking, but I like eating it. Thank you, Olga, for such a wonderful episode. Thank you for having me tonight. Speak to you soon when we record number part number two. Part number two, the sequel. What are your handles on Instagram and other social media? Instagram is Perfume Walks. It's simple and um, it's the best way to contact me, the fastest. And if you have any questions, please write to us and we'll uh, get all the information for you for our next episode. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of If It Ain't Baroque podcast. Please like, subscribe and share with your friends. And with Gemma and myself, you can find us on social media. The handle is at If It Ain't Baroque podcast. The website is If It Ain't Baroque.art. If you'd like to join me on my walking tours, please check out reignoflondon.com. That's R-E-I-G-N. And thank you so much and see you next time.